Well, we're going to continue our series on our core values. Uh, we've talked about four so far, lordship, evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development. This week we're going to end the series by beginning a series. So the last, uh, the last core value is family. And today we're going to talk about what Jesus said regarding family. And then uh, next week we'll have Mother's Day. And then the following week we're going to look at what Paul had to say about family. So turn with me over to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3. The title of the message is Family, the Bond of Obedience. Family, the Bond of Obedience. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. It says of Jesus, Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, for whoever does, does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lord, help us we study. Two things I want to talk about with respect to this passage. One, what blood family is like and the privileges that they have. And two, how God expands our family ties to include the body of Christ. Let me set this up for you as to what happened. Jesus was at home. His home was Capernaum. Now, most of you have not heard of that city because the more famous cities from which Jesus hailed or spent a lot of time were either Jerusalem or Bethlehem, the place at which he was born. But Capernaum was his adult home, and we believe even his adolescent home, growing up home. He was born in Bethlehem. Joseph, his father, was warned by an angel that he needed to leave Bethlehem because Herod was coming to seek the life of the child. That very night, he got up, left, and went to Egypt. Stayed two years until Herod passed. An angel then told Joseph again, time to go back because the one who sought the child's life is dead. He went back to Galilee. Galilee is about 80 to 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And it is defined by the Sea of Galilee which was a place of commerce, uh, a lot of fishermen there, and that's where they would get their sustenance. Galilee had many of the important cities that we find in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Nazareth, from which Jesus hailed. We believe that that was the place at which he probably grew up. Um, and then there was Nain, and then there was Capernaum, and... These are kind of like, in our area, Sterling, Reston, Herndon. Probably a day to a day and a half walk between the two, and, or three. And so they were neighboring communities. By the time Jesus had grown, though, he had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And Capernaum seemed to be his hometown. Now, we, we, we surmise that Jesus actually had a house. And my, my, my seminary propounded a little bit differently because there was a passage in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus is speaking with a man who was volunteering his service to Christ. And Jesus was about six months from going to the cross. 
This man cries out from the crowd, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, huh. Well, birds have their nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you still want to follow? That last part is Brett's commentary. And from that, they were surmising, my professors and many commentators, that Jesus never had a home because he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't think Jesus was speaking about where he rested every night. I think that passage speaks more about the authority that was going to be rejected by Israel. That was him. Meaning birds always have a place where they can roost. Even foxes have a place that they rule, call their den. But when I go down to Jerusalem, and you think I'm going to unseat Herod and kick out Pilate and tell Rome where to go, and I'm going to set up my own kingdom, and you can come and be a part of my administration. That's what you think. That's why you're saying I'll follow you. I want you to know when I go to Jerusalem, they are not going to receive me as their head. I have nowhere to lay my head. You still want to go? You want to be a part of my administration now? That's what I believe he was referring to. So I don't think it had any reference to where he slept every night. Plus, I believe Jesus was really a very good son. Not just a son of God, but a son of Mary. We don't know exactly where Joseph was at this time, but we think he passed. Jesus, <clears throat> in this passage, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 31 years of age. It wasn't uncommon for an older man to marry a younger woman in those days because it required that a man, if he wanted to get a woman of quality and standing, it required that a man earn enough money and save enough money to pay the father of, his, of the intended a bride price. Today, we call it an engagement ring. But back then, it was much more substantive than just a ring on a finger. It could be the equivalent of a hundred thousand, well, I'll say it this way, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If we look at Jacob in the Old Testament, as he wound up at Laban's home, running from Esau, he sees Laban's daughter named Rachel, and she's gorgeous. I mean, she is top ten model gorgeous. He says to Laban, her father, I will give you seven years of labor for her. Blue-collar job, caring for sheep. Let's say he's making, on the low end, 30000 a year. Multiply that by seven. $210,000 for her hand in marriage. You can see why there would be a disparity many times between the age of the, of the groom and the age of the bride because it would take a long time for a man to earn enough money and save enough money to be able to acquire a woman of standing. Thus, it could be that while Mary was somewhere in the neighborhood of 16, Joseph could have been 35 or 40. Speed up. Jesus is now 30, 31. That puts Mary right at about 46, 47. Joseph would have been well over 70. Men usually, especially men who had blue-collar jobs, i.e. Joseph was a carpenter, that's a lot of manual labor. They didn't live very long. The average age of a man back then was 56. So we think Joseph had passed. In Joseph's passing, if that's what happened, and even if he didn't, but we believe he did, it became the eldest son's responsibility to care for the mama. You don't think Jesus was a good son? Like the best? So it would be irresponsible for a son not to have a house for his mama. 
and to care for her regularly with his income as he earned. So it was his responsibility, meaning that Mary had a house. And since Jesus was not married, Jesus lived with Mary. So Jesus had a house. That's a long way around in the front door of saying this event happened at the house. Now, let me give you the reason as to why I believe Mary comes to the house and starts talking to Jesus in the middle of a church service. The woman who was most respectful about his ministry knew more about what he was to do than probably anybody on the planet more intimately involved with preparing this young man for his destiny comes up in the middle of a church meeting walks in the back door and says to an usher, could you please tell my boy to come here? Hop off stage. I got to talk to him. What would prompt a woman to do such? Knowing that his ministry was vital to the health of his nation. That this was a moment for the people of the community to receive that which they could not get any other way. Why would she interrupt a meeting like that? Go back to chapter 2. Here we have another moment when they are at the house. And Jesus is becoming really popular. I mean, he's confounding the religious folk by healing people on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Folk with withered hands all of a sudden pop out. Crippled folk are walking. It's amazing. The entire area of Galilee is a buzz about who Jesus is. And everybody wants to get close. The religious leaders are upset. The common people are excited, man, this guy. And everybody realizes, I know him. I, I like went to synagogue school. We, 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 were, we, we were buddies in fifth grade. And, and wow, we did scripture memorization. He was always better than me. But, but, but I, he was, I know him. And everybody was saying, this guy's special. So whenever he would come home from some visit, and he ministered during the first part of his ministry all around Galilee and many of the cities. Whenever he would come home, everybody would hear about it. And when they heard, they would just rush to his house. None of these meetings were choreographed. It wasn't like somebody said, we're going to do a church service at 845. He just came home from a travel. And then people saw him walking down the street. They said, oh, Jesus back. And they just, they just start showing up at his house. And it got crowded because everybody wanted to hear what he had to say and receive from his power and the virtue that flowed from his life. It was an exciting time in Capernaum. Now, later on, the religious leaders became so powerful that they intimidated everybody else, and he tried to do miracles there, and they said he could not because of the doubt and unbelief that prevailed. But in the beginning of his ministry, it was amazing. So he's at home, and uh, people are just flocking to the house. And they are flocking to the house to such a degree that people are in the doorway. They're in the windows, just sticking their ear in there, pushing folk aside. They're all in the house. They're all around trying to get any place close where they can get an earshot of anything he's got to say. And there are these fellows that have this, this guy who's a paralytic. And these fellows, four of them, realize that Jesus can help this paralytic. And, and, and so they're carrying him to, to Jesus' home. And uh, it says that when they were at the house, all these people were there. These guys realized they couldn't get in. This is Mark chapter 2. And so they, they get smart. They say, oh, we're going to get in. We're going to get in. Unconventional, but we're going to get in. They go up to the roof. It's a thatch roof. They go up to the roof and start tearing apart the roof in the middle of the church meeting. And then they lower the guy down. Can you imagine? Jesus is talking. And all of a sudden, 
They start hearing stuff on the roof, and stuff starts falling down on people. So what are y'all? What in the world? Now, Jesus isn't mad. Mary is, but Jesus isn't mad. <laughs> they drop the guy down, and Jesus is just sitting there, and he says, literally, y'all got some faith. That's amazing. You believe I can help this boy so much that you're willing to go through this? He looks at the guy. Now, the religious leaders are there, too. He looks at the guy and says, dude, your sins are forgiven. Oh, the religious leaders get so mad. How can a man tell another man his sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. That's blasphemy, blasphemy. They didn't say it out loud, but they thought it in their heart. Jesus, knowing the thought, says this. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to say that a man's sins can be forgiven or get up and walk? No answer. Now, the reason he said that is that if he is not who he says he is, and he, he does not have the authority to forgive sins, that he is outside of his bounds in God, and the Lord would not bless the miraculous which is needed to raise this man up. But if he is exactly who he says he is, and he has the authority to forgive sins, then he's going to, then the Lord, the Father, is going to back with power that which, he's, which is needed to raise the guy up out of his bed of affliction. So he says, tell me, which is easier? Because if I can say this, your sins are forgiven, and God backs me with that, with the miraculous in in that the guy gets up, then what I said was legitimate, and you have to say it's true. If what I say is illegitimate, and that this, I, I can't tell this man his sins are forgiven, and this guy does not get up, then you know I'm a false prophet, and you are exactly right about what you're thinking. No answer. He says, eh, okay, just get up and walk. When he gets up and walks, then all the people know, oh, no, oh, my. He's not just a prophet. He can actually forgive sin. Ooh, you something, Jesus. Now, the religious leaders are really mad. They don't know what to do. The guy gets up and out. Revival is happening in Capernaum. Revival is happening. Here we go. Now, Jesus has come back. He's gone to some other cities in the area, and he's preached. And now he's back at his home in Capernaum. And the same thing has happened. Showed up at the house and everybody just showed up. Mary's not there though. Mary's someplace else. She realizes she comes, she walks up on her, maybe she went to Safeway. She walks up in her house and she sees all cars lining the driveway down the street. Everybody's just shown up. Donkeys every place, just, just parked. And she's saying, Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hey, 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 hey. Get this. I need to talk to my son right now. I need to talk. To, right? And it, no text, no email, no phone. And so this was a delivery system by way of one mouth to another. She's outside, can't get in because the crowds are so large. She tells one guy who tells another guy who tells another guy who tells another guy who tells another guy. Finally gets to Jesus in the house. And they say, hey, your mama and your brothers are outside looking for you. Why in the world... Would, would, would Mary, who knows the ministry of Christ so well and the importance of it, want to interrupt a church meeting like that? Except that she just wanted to tell him, don't touch my roof. Don't let him mess up the house this time, please. You got some authority. Please use it in that area. I don't want to have to repair the roof. 
I don't know exactly what it was, but I have a feeling that it was something on that order or else she would have never interrupted a revival moment. She had that much respect for the ministry that Christ had. All she wanted to do is say, please leave my house intact. Please don't mess up my house this time. But mama's blood family have the privilege that others do not. They can interrupt a meeting like that. They can influence their son. Next week, we're going to talk about the wedding at uh, Cana and what it looks like. They can, they can say things that others can't. My, my, my immediate family, see, you all call me Pastor Brett. Nobody in my house does. I'm dad. I'm Brett. They have privileges. Blood family can do some stuff. My children talk to one another in very affectionate and disparaging ways call one another names. Why? Because they stretch the bounds of security to make each other feel like, I can say this and you're still going to be here tomorrow. I can call you ugly and you know I don't mean it, but nobody else can do that to you. I love you. I can stretch it and know that you understand that I'll give my life for you. There are things that we can do with one another that nobody else. Now, you call somebody else, call some family member of mine a name. Oh, they all seven going to jump on you. <laughs> but each other, it doesn't matter because they have a bond that's unique. Security is stretched out in a very extended way. There are things that blood family can do that others can't. And when you get spiritual family, I mean real spiritual family, brothers who really love you like you were blood and sisters that care about you like you got the same last name. It's pretty amazing. Now, we don't know exactly whether these brothers who are identified as such in Scripture were actually the children of Mary and Joseph. The reason being, there is no word in the Greek or the Hebrew for that matter. In many of the ancient languages, there's no word for cousin. So, the child of your parents, brother, or sister was always called your sibling, brother or sister. Always. They were never called cousin because there wasn't a name. They didn't feel the need to delineate like that. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, um, having, having some languages be more definitive than others at times, you have to go back and forth to try to figure out which one should be used as a strength and which one is supportive to another. Sometimes Greek helps you more than English does, and sometimes English helps you more than Greek. Here, we don't know, but there's nothing in Scripture that says that Mary had other children, so it's our tendency to believe without trying to impose something on the Scriptures that we want to think is true because of our culture. We, we then have to revert back when it doesn't say so and say this was culturally the way things were, and these were probably known as Jesus' cousins rather than brothers. Either way, doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to give you a theological lesson. When it comes to family, God allows our hearts to be expanded because love knows no bounds. And so even though individual members of a blood family are super important and never need to be minimized, nor can they be superseded, in many ways they can be equaled because spiritual family ought to feel like that. It ought to feel like that. See, the heart is big enough to where it can expand without limit. Now, we can't care for everybody like God cares for everybody. 
We don't have the bandwidth, nor do we have the capacity. So we, we are limited in, in our scope of who we can actually give ourselves to. But when it comes to loving people, there is no end to how you can do that. Your heart is, is made that big. And even when there are barriers that are put in the way by people's offense towards you, when they hurt you, God has given prescriptive aids for you to fix that, called forgiveness, so that love can be reengaged. There is no end to love. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love always does what it's supposed to do. It never fails, ever. It has the ability to extend beyond natural parameters. Whenever you apply it, it works, and it never quits. Love never fails. It does what it's supposed to do. And so you can actually invite people into your life and your heart at finitum. You can have brothers and sisters, and this is the beauty of how God wants to extend family. Jesus here wasn't rebuking his mother. He was expanding the scope of who he could identify with as family members. And we believe here that God wants to create spiritual family. And that should be just as significant as natural. It doesn't mean that it replaces natural. It's just an addition. And don't you want people who love you like your family? Maybe, uh, I don't know what family you came from, so I have to hedge my bets. But, but would you not like people who would love you like your family's supposed to? And even better, they go beyond. They do things that are different. Wouldn't you like to have as many people like that in your sphere of relationship as possible? then you are probably going to have to be that to somebody else rather than always looking for it. Somebody came to me I hadn't seen in six months. I said, where you been? I said, well, I've, I've, I've been searching around. I said, okay, I understand. What, what, made you, what made you leave? Well, we had a moment where, you know, you do that hug thing. You greet somebody, and nobody greeted me. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the exhortation was for everybody to greet somebody. So, so, so who did you greet? So do you know that somebody might have left because you didn't greet? Everybody's always looking for somebody to meet their need. Christianity goes the other way around. It doesn't matter what your need. God can meet your need. I need to say that differently. It does matter what your need is, but your need should never be put in front of somebody else's because we are to prefer others above ourselves. Everything about Christianity is thinking about somebody else before you think about yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you neglect yourself. You ought to give yourself to your spiritual development. You ought to care for yourself well. You ought to do the things necessary for you to grow. But so that you can be a better servant to everybody else who needs you. So when you come in here, even though I know you need some help, you're looking for the worship team to take you someplace where you can't get on your own. You're looking for Pastor Brett to at least, okay, don't hit it off the park, but, uh, off the park, but, but uh, knock it off the back, back wall and give me a triple today, Pastor. Give me a triple. 
You're looking for somebody to do something for you. I get it. But at some point, you need to come in here saying, what can I do for somebody else? You want people to love you like family? Be family first. Be family. Jesus expanded it. Expanded it. And and, and he expanded it. And the writer of, of Mark is doing what he can to try to give a sense of, of, of detail to the moment. It says, first of all, when you looked at the body of believers there, it says they were seated around him. Kind of like church. Now, I'm not in any way, nor do I have delusions of thinking that somehow I am messianic in my orientation. <laughs> I am not. I'm not even close. You just got to ask my family about that. I'm not Jesus. I have so many reasons as to why I'm not. But when God comes in our place, when he comes to meet us on a Sunday, we are, we are looking for him to speak through the vessels that he has chosen to use. Whether it be those who are singing or those who are articulating or those who are preaching, we are looking for somebody to give us something that we could not get on our own and help us so that we can manage better for the week. And we are trusting that that wisdom comes not just from men, but from Almighty God. So we become emissaries and voice pieces of the Lord to you. And in that respect, I do not back down. I realize that every once in a while, God likes to use me to talk to you. And if your ears are open and you are in the right spot, you will receive something that's going to help you. These people happen to be seated around Christ. And this morning you are seated in the right environment. Thank God you endured the rain. I don't know what happens to people in Washington. It rains and it's like, oh my goodness, it's raining. I can't go out. What's wrong? Why they gave windshield wipers. There is a sense that You make a commitment to do this on the regular, to sit at the feet of Christ. And I'm so happy you're here, but don't make this your only moment. You ought to make sure that your alarm clock does more than just get you up for work. It gets you up to spend time with him. The the first priority ought to be, I got to sit at his feet this morning. I got to sit around him. I want to hear what you have to say to me today, reading your Bible, praying, and not coming with your own agenda about what you want him to say to you, but allowing yourself to hear what he wishes to say, tuning your ear regularly so you can understand what he's saying because he is speaking all the time. I'm convinced of it. You just have your, your radio frequency on the wrong number. You're tuned to the wrong frequency, the wrong dial. You're at the wrong spot on the radio. You're listening to you. You're listening to the the enemy. You know his voice really well. Fear, doubt and unbelief, cynicism, gossip, wrong thoughts. He's, He's inspiring people regularly. But in order to hear the voice of God, you've got to put yourself in a place where you know what he sounds like. And the only way to do that is to read what he's already said. So you've got to read your Bible every day to let the the sound of his voice become that which is familiar to you so that when you don't have your scriptures in front of you, when you're at your workplace, when you're out in the field of of, of playing football or basketball, when you're at your dance recital, you can hear him speak to you about what he wants to do through you for that person. 
Otherwise, you don't know what he sounds like. He's talking, but you're on the wrong frequency. These people were in the environment to hear around him. And then they were listening. Boy, I mean, they had their ears perked. I mean, they were, they were, they were listening to the words that were coming out of his mouth. It was like, I can't wait. Give me another phrase. Give me another sentence. Is there a hunger in your life to hear what God has to say? There ought to be something on the inside of you that, that makes you think that this is the most important hour of your week. At least one of them. It's not just a clock in, clock out. It is a moment where I get to hear in a crystalline way what God wants me to know for this week, for my family. And then Jesus ties their hearing to obedience. So he lets them know, I realize you're here and I'm happy. Glad you're, around. Glad you're listening, that's good. But I want you to know the only way you can get as close as possible to me is if you translate your presence and your hearing to doing. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, there were two guys who went to church, Brett's paraphrase. Both of them heard the word, excited about it, shouted hallelujah and amen every fourth phrase. One of them went out, said that was one of the best messages I've ever heard, but he didn't live it on Tuesday. And he began to build his spiritual life around what he heard, not what he did. And so there was a separation from his conduct to what he heard. Couldn't tell he was a believer by the way he lived, but he sounded right. He had a good talk. And he began to build his house. The second guy who heard the same message decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put into practice exactly what I heard. And on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and, and Sunday, he said, I'm going to work this as best I know how, and I'm going to obey that which I know to be true. Both of them built a house. The guy who heard and didn't obey decided to build his house, but not on a foundation that could endure anything. He built on sand. The guy who heard and obeyed built on a foundation of rock. The problem was this, that the storm was on its way. Neither of them knew it, but the storm was on its way. And I hate to be the bearer of reality news, but each of us are right around the corner from a storm. I don't like it. I like happy stuff. I'm an optimist. I believe right around the corner I am from blessing. But that doesn't mean that the storm is not inevitable. That I'm going to get blessing through the storm. Somehow or another, I'm going to find God in the midst of my difficulty, not because I don't have any. The storm is coming to all of your lives. And it's going to be with great intensity, some more than others. But it's on its way. The problem is this, we are only reminded of how important it is to build well when the storm shows up. Too late to build then. Can't build in a hurricane. Can't build. Too late. Too late. Nobody wants to take the great effort to build anything well when all things are going well. Because we say, it's going good. No problems. I'm happy. God's blessed. All good. But the storm's on its way. And when the storm came to these two guys, the guy who had built his house on the sand was destroyed. Destroyed. The guy who built his house on the rock, he lost some shutters. Shingles flew off. Had to repaint a little bit, but he was dry. All good. Had a house. How are you building? 
Are you obeying what you hear? And as I close, Jesus said it's so important to get this area of obedience down because those who I consider family are the ones who obey, not just here. Obedience grafts you into family with Jesus. Now, we most often like to define our relationship with Jesus on the basis of how we feel about Jesus. We good. Me and Jesus, we tight. I mean, we are so tight. I mean, I pray. I read my Bible. It's good. It's real good. Are you sleeping around? Well, I ask for forgiveness. Are you you taking things in your body that are either not good for you or illegal? Maybe once in a while, but, you know, I ask for forgiveness. That's what it's there for, right? We have some problems. I'm not trying to minimize to you the, the, the fabulous concept of forgiveness. But why do you want to live in such a way that you always need it? Why not live in such a way that you can receive the, the, the approval of the Father rather than always saying, I'm sorry? It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you when you blow it. It just means he's not happy. Every, every parent knows what I'm talking about when it comes to being able to distinguish between approval and love. You can love those little people who are called after your name, but be mad at them every day of your life. Every day of your life doing something dumb. I can't believe what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Doesn't change your love. I don't want God to have to treat me like that. Jesus says obedience is important. We think we can define our relationship with him on the basis of how we feel. Jesus says, no, not really. I'm the one who defines my relationship with you. So whether you think you have a good relationship with God or not doesn't mean you do. Jesus is the one who defines it. And he says, those who obey, I call brothers and sisters. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils? Didn't we perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because I could never figure you out. I don't even know who you are. These guys were spiritual heavyweights. But they trusted the spectacular and their ministries to substitute for their obedience. So they thought they could preach their way into heaven in God's favor. They thought they could do the miraculous and ministry in the way way to God's favor. Jesus said, I've just wanted to know whether you're faithful to your wife. I want to know whether you love your brother. Have you practiced forgiveness? If you haven't done any of that, then I don't know how much I can identify with you. We're not talking about perfection because forgiveness is there for whenever we blow it. But we are talking about consistency. Jesus said, I'll call you my brother, my sister, my relative on the basis of your obedience. Now, this isn't a works-oriented message I'm preaching today. 
This is, this is just how we relate to him. Because we can't save ourselves by our good works. Ain't no way. Impossible. You could try to do the best you possibly can, and it would fall eternally short, infinitely short, of what it takes to try to get in the favor of God. The only way we can get right is if he makes us so. He's the one that establishes relationship with us and calls us to himself and, and, and draws us into his presence and forgives us. We can't do it by our good works. But once we receive that which he has given, then it's our responsibility to obey him because he said, if you love me, do what I say. It's our responsibility to love him like that. That's the way he wants to be loved. Not how we want to love him. We need to love him like he wants to be loved. And he said, if you love me, do what I say. He wants to identify with us as family and adopt us completely. Give us his name, even if there is a chance and probably a better one than should be, that we will mar his name in the process. But that's how much he loves you. He's willing to give you identification, even if it means it costs him because he cares about you like that. But he does it on the basis of your compliance with his will on the regular. Family allows for this kind of of activity and trust to be that which is amplified in a church. Rather than just membership, we become brothers and sisters. And I can begin and you can begin to trust people on the level of their obedience. When you think about it, I mean, you don't trust people that don't have your best interest in mind and if you say hold this in confidence for me and it winds up on Facebook wait 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 I thought you you didn't do what I said and what do you do you say okay I forgive you but we're going to distance ourselves right now this is all about trust can Jesus trust you can he trust you so, family is a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Let's pray.